From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, May 27th. The peaks of the LaSalle Mountains near Moab are impressive. They rise above the surrounding landscape, signaling a vastly different environment from the Red Rock mesas and canyons below. They include the highest peak on the Colorado Plateau, Mount Peel, standing at over 12,700 feet. In this high alpine environment, researchers have found a unique ecosystem. Plants like rock columbine, Patterson sagewort, and the famous LaSalle daisy. That's a flower found nowhere else in the world. This place is so unique, the Forest Service designated the peaks of Mount Peel, Tuke, and Melanthin a research natural area. Almost 35 years ago, the federal agency added these protections because of its importance to science, a place that should remain in, quote, unmodified condition. They are to be areas that you don't put pipelines, you don't raise, you don't build trails, you don't modify it because it's a research natural area. That's Mary O'Brien. For years, she has repeated this over and over to the Forest Service, to the State Division of Wildlife Resources, to Utah courts, in public meetings, and to the press. She's hammered this point home through her work with the Grand Canyon Trust and now Project 1100. The reason? Mountain goats. In 2013, the Utah Division of Wildlife began introducing mountain goats to the LaSalle's for hunting and recreation opportunities. At the time, the Forest Service raised concerns, but did not intervene. O'Brien wishes they would have, because about a decade later, after years of study and research, the Forest Service has found what she says she knew all along, that the goats are negatively impacting the alpine ecosystem. That's what goats do. They eat anything and reach habitat that recreationists don't reach, that cattle don't get to. They'll go precisely to those areas where the endemic rare plants are. The goats not only eat plants, they make wallows digging into soil and rolling in the loose dirt, giving themselves dust baths. In 2020, O'Brien's stakeholders documented nearly 300 wallows in the research natural area alone. Now, just this week, the Forest Service released their own report after five years of federal research. Their data shows goats negatively affect alpine plants. In their press release, one word sticks out pretty boldly, concern. There's some apparent trends that have emerged that have caused us to be uh, quite concerned about what's occurring in the LaSalle alpine ecosystem and to the sensitive and native plant species, endemic species like the LaSalle daisy uh, that occurs uh, only in the LaSalle mountain range. Michael Engelhart, local district ranger for the Mante LaSalle National Forest. For O'Brien, who spot the Forest Service trying to get them to act on the goats for years, a word like concern is a big deal. This is a watershed moment because the Forest Service has tried to collaborate for nine years with UDWR and UDWR would not countenance the conclusion that the goats are causing depletion of sensitive plant species. It could not have been otherwise. So if what the Forest Service is going to propose is reducing the number of goats, that is, from their point of view, convincing the UDWR to do that, and studying some more, the damage will continue. The goats have to go. 
but it's unclear if removing the goats is the next move. The summary report released by the Forest Service this week has caveats. They state impacts on plants could also be associated with recreation use and climate change. Here's Engelhart. So we don't have clear, conclusive, undeniable evidence right now that we cross some sort of line that alpine ecosystem, yes, it's trending downward, and those are some concerns, but the evidence just isn't conclusive enough for us to state a clear incompatibility between those those uses and the, the environment. For the state's Division of Wildlife Resources, that lack of clarity means more research is needed. In a statement to KZMU News, the agency said they will work on a follow-up study of their own starting this summer. They say the Forest Service analysis showed there were, quote, potential effects on some of the rare plants, forbs, and ground cover. But the state says the impacts are not significant. So will management of the mountain goat herd change? It sounds like that's a conversation between the state and the Forest Service. I asked Engelhart at the Forest Service whether this is a question of time. Does the agency want more time to gather more data? He said for him, not necessarily. It's not just time. We're not just waiting for something to happen. We're, we're looking very strongly at what's happening up there. We have a lens that is very focused and placing a lot of resources and researchers in place to make sure that we don't reach a point of irreversible harm to those ecosystems. He says to prevent such harm, both the state and federal agencies need to make a strong commitment to review the data together. The Utah DWR says they will make wildlife management recommendations to offset any negative impacts where appropriate. O'Brien can't get rid of the goats fast enough. Their population is currently estimated to range between 85 to 125 in the local alpine ecosystem. She says yes, climate change and recreation use compound impacts. But she says this obscures a more straightforward point. Climate change doesn't make wallows. Recreationists don't make wallows. Only goats make wallows. This is not rocket science. There is some precedent for removing mountain goats in the West. Officials with the Olympic National Park and Forest in Washington have been removing and relocating a large herd there, which they say threaten plant species and habitat. It's taken decades of study for the park and forest to get to that point. O'Brien is concerned that the LaSalle's and even other areas of Utah don't have that kind of time. Utah Division of Wildlife Resources is proposing to introduce goats in Logan Canyon, where there's 12 rare endemic plants up on slopes that the goats will use. It's inevitable that if those goats are introduced, those endemic plants will be depleted. The state says mountain goats have already migrated to the Logan Canyon area likely from nearby Willard Peak. The state wildlife board has approved an increase to their population in Logan Canyon, but officials don't have specific plans for when that might happen. As for the LaSalle's and the Forest Service, Engelhart says they are listening. I just want people to know that it does have our attention. He stressed again, the federal agency has concerns about mountain goats, recreation, and climate change. And he says they're moving forward to, quote, strengthen bonds with their partners on public lands. For more on the Forest Service's Alpine Ecosystem Monitoring Report, find the show notes of today's news on our website and podcast. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Moab Regional Hospital aims to increase access to addiction recovery services and support with a new facility 
focused on just that. Sophia Fisher with the Times Independent highlights their coverage. An exciting new medical facility that's coming to Moab, uh, the Moab Regional Recovery Center, which is located behind the hospital, had its ribbon cutting last week, last Friday, for its June opening. And this recovery center is going to provide kind of a full spectrum of addiction recovery uh, resources for those recovering from substance abuse disorders. Okay, so this is a big deal for the Moab community and for really our region. Um, Tell us about the ribbon cutting. Absolutely. There were dozens of people. Um, A few folks spoke. We started off with Jen Sadoff, the CEO of the hospital, and then moved on to Dr. Lauren Prest, who is the medical director um, and addiction recovery specialist. And we also heard from Megan West, who works for the Utah Office of Health and Human Services, Um, and a bunch of also local care providers, local nonprofits, the health department, etc., Um, had booths at the event too because the recovery center is certainly a collaborative space where they're trying to bring in a bunch of different service providers. Right. It's going to address very pressing issues in the community. Care there deals with a range of different um, substance use disorders but has special emphasis on opioid and alcohol um, abuse disorders because those are the most common in Grand County. And care isn't free but they do have a generous financial aid program they've said and they said they're committed to having nobody turned away from care who seeks it. Mm. Um, So, you know, encourage anyone who, who might need care to reach out to them. You've also written a compa- almost companion story about overdoses and fentanyl um, plaguing Grand County, as the headline says. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about this piece. Yeah, very very sad piece um, and, and kind of serendipitously connected to the ribbon cutting of the new right. center, although I heard about it from totally different avenues. But mm. um, yeah, fentanyl, which, which as listeners may know, is a synthetic opioid. It's very, very potent. Uh, that, along with kind of national opioid addiction trends, has been affecting Grand County just as much as the rest of the nation. So I I know nationally, it looks like overdose deaths in 2021 are about double what they were about six years ago. Um, Many of those attributable to fentanyl and other other opioids. Um, And in Grand County specifically, it's a huge issue. I received state data showing that of the 17 fatal overdoses in Grand County over the past 10 years, seven of those 17, which is about 40%, occurred in 2020 and 2021 alone. Wow. So you know, an ostensibly low number, but a very high percentage overall. And I spoke with local care providers, um, as well as the mother um, of somebody who did pass away from an overdose a few years ago. And they're just saying that the community is seeing something it's never seen before. I mean, fentanyl is being cut into all sorts of drugs it was never cut Mm. into before. So a lot of people are using it without having any idea. And it's extremely fatal in low doses. Now, I know that in our community, things like fentanyl test strips are available from USARA. Did you talk about like, you know, what advocates are doing to prevent overdoses? Absolutely. Um, So yeah, USARA, which is the Utah Support Advocates for Recovery Awareness, Mm. um, lovely people located next to Spitfire, and they're distributing fentanyl test strips. So you're able to take a a small amount of drug and see if fentanyl is contained in it, um, as well as naloxone, which can reverse an opioid overdose, Mm -hmm. um, and kits that render drugs innocuous too, Mm -hmm. in case you have drugs you want to like put out of commission, giving all those things away for free, no Mm -hmm. questions asked anonymously at the USARA office. Um, Everybody's welcome to reach out. All of their services are free. They have a variety of addiction recovery services. Um, And one thing that several interviewees emphasized to me is about educating teens and tweens about this. Mm -hmm. Apparently, there's been some community pushback and some stigma saying, like, you know, we don't have this problem here. Mm -hmm. This isn't an issue. This is just encouraging folks to use. Um, But the point that was made to me by Lynette Denton at USARA is that, like, we can't help people get better if they're not with us. Right. So Mm -hmm. helping people, right, right, recover, Mm -hmm. you know, like, survive after an overdose is mm-hmm. so important to 
getting them on the path to recovery. Um, so educate your kids. You never know when somebody's going to be a first responder. You, you yeah. Know. With the naloxone kits, you can have those for free and anyone can carry them. Too. Absolutely. I grabbed some when I was interviewing them. I put some in my office. I put some in my house. I mean, mm-hmm. anyone can go grab those because you never know. Anything else to mention about this piece about um, overdoses and especially fentanyl that's um, in our community? One thing that alarmed me is that it's being cut. Uh, there was a story they had about it being cut into marijuana actually up in price a year or two ago so you know substances you would never necessarily expect that stuff to get cut into Um, so please be on the lookout everybody another story that i'm hoping you can um highlight in the times independent is about coronavirus yes we're talking about it uh two and a half years into the pandemic yeah my my editor doug joked that we should have entitled this um like here we go again or something like that but not not to you know stoke too much anxiety or fear in the community um Mm -hmm. it is true that grand county has had increase in covid case rates um in line with state and national trends over the past couple weeks which should put us in medium transmission status um those statuses low medium or high are Mm -hmm. determined by the cdc and Mm -hmm. if you actually go into the cdc portal though it looks like grand is in low there's been a data omission on the Mm. website the case counts for grand county haven't been updated since february or march oh wow Um, and it's unclear what's causing that i've alerted the health department to it but it could have happened at the local level the state level or the federal level Mm. um so not to you know point fingers or anything but we are right now technically in a medium transmission status so what does that mean medium transmission status does that mean that we have to take extra precautions or what's what's the recommendation out there yeah so actually cdc guidance for low and medium are, are pretty similar on the whole So mask wearing is not necessarily recommended for the entire population. Um, On the whole, as with low, everybody's encouraged to be up to date on boosters and vaccines, um, to follow guidance around quarantining if you've Mm -hmm. been exposed or have symptoms of COVID. Um, And the main difference that I saw is that folks who are immunocompromised or at high risk for disease, or if you live with somebody who's that way, you should consider or talk to your health provider about potentially masking up. But an important part of this is I I did speak with Brady Bradford who's the health officer for the Southeast Utah Health Department Mm -hmm. and he says he does not see cause for concern at this time. As far as the guidance is concerned in this community it's about your individual risk also you know and knowing you know if you live with someone or if you are someone who is at higher risk to take more precautions. Totally. I'm hoping we can go now to inside of the paper in the Times Independent about um, a new residential development this is a story uh, you wrote also, new residential development in Castle Valley. Possible. Possible. Okay. <laughs> Definitely not a done uh-huh. deal. Um, yeah, as listeners may know, I think this has been making the rounds in the community this week. SITLA, the State School and Institutional Trust Lands Administration, owns 480 acres of land um, in Castle Valley. That is to say the geographic valley, not in the town proper. Okay. Um, it's at the southeastern end, right around where the LaSalle Loop Road intersects with the Castleton Gateway Road, mm. where the Castleton Gravel Pit is right now. Um, And they've received an application for um, residential development there. So the application has not necessarily been accepted. It's not been decided, but they've received it. Uh, Previously, the parcel had been used for grazing and um, for gravel extraction for the roads. And I spoke with Marla Kennedy, who's a spokesperson for the for the trust. She said that they're actually going to open a competitive bidding process for this property mm-hmm. uh, in a few months, and that will last one month. And then Sitla will make the decision on who to award the bid to for the leasing the land. So that's why it says possible in the headline. Very very few details almost no details um, are available about that proposed development at the moment. Um, But I do know that, you know, the town of Castle Valley, despite not being directly notified, actually, by the trust, because Mm. 
the parcel does not lie within the town's boundaries technically so they're not mm. required um, mm. I believe to reach out Castle Valley did submit a letter of commentary a couple days ago expressing concerns about water and wildfire risk you said you know this has been going around in the community any concerns that you're hearing yes I've heard frustrations that Castle Valley wasn't alerted um, because you know technically it is in unincorporated Grand County but it's very close to Castle Valley and if they're drawing into water it would likely be the same water source as Castle Valley but the Grand County Commission was alerted and I think the Southeastern Utah Association of Governments was also alerted. Um, but yeah, Castle Valley residents, I think, felt a little bit left out. Finally, let's go to Moab City real fast. Um, their budget process is happening. They're on a fiscal year budget. Um, any highlights from this piece in the Times Independent? Yeah, uh, Moab City Council did have a public hearing on Tuesday for the uh upcoming fiscal year budget, which would be 2022 through 2023. Uh, the budget is $16.3 million. Mm-hmm. Um, at the public hearing, they didn't actually receive any public comment, public wow. participation. Mm-hmm. Um, so for now, they're moving forward with it, and they have a tentative approval date of June 14. Those documents, are they available online? Uh, MoabCity.com slash budget. So you can see a visualization of strategic plans there and, you know, more kind of line-by-line right. expenses and revenues and all that. Um, one thing I noted is that it does include an estimated $5 million for improvements to Cane Creek Boulevard, including um, adding sidewalks and crosswalks and storm drain improvements. So for anybody interested in the local city budget, I know during election season, people always bring this up. The time is now to make your comments and to check it out. Again, uh, moabcity.com slash budget. Sophia Fisher, staff writer at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. A headstone found in northern Grand County has been restored, and with it, a little more knowledge of Japanese railroad workers that were here at the turn of the century. Allison Hartford with the Moab Sun News has more from their story. The Bureau of Land Management first found this tombstone in 1993. Um, They were out near this old railroad that they were looking into, and then they found this tombstone that was in three pieces. All it says on the tombstone is K. Kawanishi, and there's a small flower on it, and then the words native of Japan. Hmm. And so this tombstone was in three pieces for years, and over the past several weeks, Amy Berry, who's the cemetery's program manager for the Utah Division of State History, decided to kind of make it her project, and she cleaned and restored the broken pieces in her lab in the Salt Lake City area. Hmm. And then um, this past week, officials from the Moab BLM office, staff, from the museum and Edith Mitko who served as the state director of Asian affairs um, and a couple other people joined Amy when she brought the pieces back to the site where it was found and she recreated the tombstone basically. I'm sure reporter Rachel Fixon kind of got into like the historical significance Mm -hmm. and I know um, not much is known about this person but did she find out a little bit about the era? Yeah definitely. The tombstone really helps reveal a lot about this era especially because this man um, came from Japan and all that they know about him was that um, he immigrated in 1900 in his early 20s. He lived in a boarding house in Thompson Springs and worked for the Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad Company and he was married. And then at some time between 1900 and 1905, he died and was buried. And so Rachel kind of dove into what brought him here. And there's a huge story of Japanese laborers in Utah. Um, And it's been really hard to tell this story because of the scarcity of objects. Mm -hmm. And so this tombstone adds to that object list. Like you said, there's a dearth of information about 
railroad workers in this era. The state has done some projects for Chinese railroad workers up mm-hmm. north. Yeah, yeah. And Rachel also kind of explored this history of railroads and racism in the mm-hmm. U.S. and in Grand County. Mm-hmm. Um, and around this time that Kawanishi immigrated, there was this really huge anti-Chinese sediment that was festering, you know, for decades. Mm. Um, and in 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, with, mm. which banned entry to the U.S. to Chinese immigrants for the next 10 years. And so people who were already in the U.S. were leaving due to pressure. Railroad companies still needed workers and mm-hmm. began recruiting immigrants from other countries, including Japan, um, which is how this man found his way here. There is even more history around these exclusion policies. Like in 1924, there was the National Origins Act, which banned immigration from Asia entirely. And so it's just a really interesting piece of our history that I feel like it's only recently been talked about. Really exciting. I love reading stories like this. Um, So more information, of course, is in the Moab Sun News. Anything else to mention about this piece? Rachel was there when Amy Berry went and um, put the tombstone back together. So she has really amazing pictures of this before Mm. and after. And it's this bizarre site. It's just kind of this lonely little Mm. spot in northern Grand County. But now the tombstone is back and stands strong again. And of course, if you want to learn more about it, it's in Rachel's article, I wonder if the state will have an information page. Yeah, yeah. So um, she does mention that Amy Berry is working on a database that tracks individual grave sites around Utah. And so she's been kind of organizing this database to better map everything. Um, And so this coordinate is the most recent one that she's mapped. Very cool. Well, there's more in the Moab Sun News. I heard you went to Easy Bee Farm and hung out with uh, the farmers over there. Yeah, so Rhonda Gottway Clyde is the owner of Easy Bee Farm. I originally went there because I was asking her about um, like native bees <laughs> when I was writing a story about the Moab Bee Inspired Gardens Project, and she invited me out to the farm, and so we just talked about like how she got her start farming and also this really exciting farm stand that she's working on. Farm stand meaning she's going to have vegetables available on yeah. the side of the road, that sort of thing? Yes, yeah. It's this big concrete building that's probably the size of like a large shed. Mm. Um, and she has a lot of plans for it. She's really excited to be able to bring more local produce to the community. And this is something that's really important in Moab. And I'm also interested in it because it's kind of this juxtaposition between farming in the desert, mm. which which, you know, it's so hot and we have no water and there's wind and weird insects and the soil. Um, yeah, and the soil's terrible. And it's like this question of like, well, should we be farming in the desert? But then there are places like Easy Bee Farm that provide local food. You know, when you're thinking about water conservation in your diet, mm-hmm. it's much better to get your food locally than mm-hmm. go to the grocery store mm-hmm. and buy it, even though it's grown in Moab. And then Rhonda and I were also talking about how fresh produce can bring a lot of the community together. Her CSA shares, she has 50 of them, and some of them are working CSA shares. So you go to the farm and harvest your own food. Mm -hmm. Um, And that way it's like you're connecting back to your food and you're also connecting to other people in your Mm. community. What did Rhonda say about that question of farming in the desert? We've talked about how local produce is this really amazing thing that she's able to provide. Um, And she has said that farming in the desert 
for her has come with all of these challenges also. With drought, she's been utilizing a lot of water conservation tactics around the farm. Mm. And she's also been planting like native shelter belts to try to create shade and Mm. windbreaks. Oh, neat. Did you say when the farm stand was coming online or coming in real life? It'll be a little bit. Um, I think Rhonda's planning to have it up and running like in the next few years. But she has huge plans for it. She wants to turn it eventually into a co-op too to get even more of the community involved with like selling and buying local agriculture. Exciting stuff. Anything mm-hmm. else to mention about uh, Easy Bee Farm or this piece? Um, one of my favorite things about Easy Bee Farm is that Jen Sadoff, who's the CEO of Moab Regional Hospital, her grandmother's jade tree currently lives in Rhonda's greenhouse because mm-hmm. it was it's huge and it was just too large and too precious for Jen's house. So they were able to move the tree mm-hmm. to Easy Bee Farm. Yeah. That's fantastic. And finally, before you go, I'm hoping you can highlight an event that the Moabs and News profiled this week, the rodeo. The rodeo is returning. It'll be at the Old Spanish Trail Arena from Friday, June 3rd to Sunday, June 5th. So there will be a total of three shows throughout the weekend. I talked to Krista Wilson, who's one of the rodeo organizers, who said that they're really, really excited to have a comeback this year. Okay, so it has been gone during the pandemic. Yeah. Any um, highlights from what they're bringing back? Is it going to look different, the same? It'll look much the same. On Friday and Saturday, doors will open at 6 p.m., for a pre-show at 6.30 and the main show at 7. Um, and then on Sunday, it'll be a matinee with doors opening at 2 p.m. for a 2.30 pre-show and 3 p.m. main show. And each show will kick off with the most iconic event of any rodeo, which is the bareback riding event. So during the eight-second ride, cowboys have to move their legs in time with the bucking horse that they're riding while also remaining seated. And they don't have any saddles or anything. It's just like one strap that they're holding on to. What about... Um mutton busting yes the kids events will be there mutton busting is a children's race or riding on sheep um, and the prize is awarded to whoever can stay on the sheep for the longest amount of time the other children's event is a stick pony race so it's a foot race through an obstacle course while holding stick horses or brooms um, and signups for those events will take place this weekend during the moab arts festival and then some of the other events that are going on steer wrestling team roping there's also calf roping, barrel racing, um, and then in addition to bareback riding, there will also be bull riding and saddle bronco riding. Any comments from organizers? Krista Wilson said that Sunday is the official locals day and Sunday tickets are discounted. Allison Harford, staff reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the Weekly News Reel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.